Welcome back, friends. This is part two of my discussion with David Huynh about Robert Lewis's book, Method or Madness. In the first part, David and I discussed lectures one through four in this book. And I struggled to remember the name of a true crime podcast. It's called My Favorite Murder, and it's my wife Shannon's favorite podcast ever. Yes, I am married to a murderino. Now, on to the second part of my conversation with David about method or madness. Okay, so, fourth one down, halfway there. Uh, Let's talk about the fifth lecture. Truth in acting. I mentioned this briefly, but I want to read this quote. Stanislavski himself said, An authentic fact and genuine reality do not exist on stage. Reality is not art. This last, by its very nature, needs artistic invention, which means first of all the work of an author. The actor's task and his creative technique consist in transforming the invented play into artistic and scenic fact. Yeah. I mean, I I think it, it relates back to this idea that method actors have to they have to completely feel it. They have to be 100% immersed in what's happening. But I don't know about you. I don't really want to be 100% immersed in Mackers' mindset or like Hamlet's world or Iago. Um, they do some messed up stuff. So I, I that that idea that it needs to be crafted, that truth on stage is not reality there's a there's a difference there is is huge i just love that like so all the people that are like the method is real it's real acting nah homie stanislavski says right here that that's not the thing yeah that's that's exactly it um and it's and and it relates oh go ahead I, i just also think that it gives you tunnel vision where because i think it's self indulgent if you need to, if your gauge to tell if you're acting or not is if it feels right, if it feels good, that kind of, I think, makes you go for what you think sadness is or anger is. So I think that it kills spontaneity a bit and it's kind of limited. Um, you know, something that I was really surprised by is how um, some people cry when they're extremely happy. You know, like it's it's very against what you would think or how some people will, I, I don't know. It just makes you, it, if it's, if you're, if it's your, your truth of what an emotion is may not necessarily translate to other people, may not necessarily translate to how they express it or how they feel it, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Lewis talks about this. Because he talks about how if if all you're focused on as the actor is the actor's truth, is your own truth, you are ignoring the author's truth, the character's truth, um, the production's truth, their, the, the, whether that's truth of style or whatever. It, it ignores a lot of things. And he says essentially a half-truth on stage is not a truth that's just as, that's just as untruthful as a falsehood. And, and I think if people walk in with that mindset, then the actor 
will help create a greater connection among the ensemble mm -hmm. and among a production. So this this individual nature that I think lots of times can be pointed to in the use or misuse of the method uh, system stems from this idea that the actor's truth is the only thing that matters. But he talks about this later with being an artist. An artist works together to create something in the theater. Even if you're doing a one-person show, then you are... If you didn't write the piece, then you are you need to consider the truth of the author. If you did write the piece, then you have to consider the truth of the person who might be directing you. If you're doing it all by yourself, well, then guess what? You're considering all the truths, and it is your truth. That's the way I see it anyway. Yeah, but I don't know how many pieces I'd want to see that are written, directed, and acted by the same person. I don't want to... I don't want to see too many Mel Gibsoning of projects, you know. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing that 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 is a great point, and I think that's where that's where you get more into like a performance art piece as opposed to a theater piece. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's also like a pretty clear. Um, this is going to be kind of a roundabout way of thinking of this, but I was talking to someone about an online project that I was doing. And he was like, oh, no, you don't have to worry about the union. If you're doing something where you're not playing another character, if you're just yourself, you're not you're not really acting. You know, like it's not technically it's it doesn't the union doesn't have any sway over that. OK. And that just made me think of like, oh, yeah, if you're if it's a piece that you made and it's yours, there's there's no edifice being put on. There's no mask being put on. It's it's kind of a different kind of revealing. Sure. I really liked what you said about what the ensemble is building and about what we were talking about, how limited someone's perception of what one emotion may be. I love this quote from the book. Truth is not static. Truth is the search for truth. And he's talking about truth on stage. Yes. Uh, yeah. Just just to be clear, we're talking about artistic truth. That is something that Lewis says over and over again throughout this book once he brings this up. Um, it's artistic truth, not realist, uh, not reality. Again, not reality. Because we understand, you know, that there are people on stage wearing costumes and telling a story that isn't necessarily theirs. So I like that it's the search for truth because it leaves room for other people to join you in that search. And if you're searching for truth, you don't have ownership over it, it leaves more room for what that truth may be. I, I like the, I mean, for me personally, I like being in a play where the problem is ever-changing and my scene partners will drop in and drop out to help me solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah, that, that working together to solve the problems is... It's it's amazing to reach a level where you have that where you have that sort of trust and respect for each other as ensemble members to to solve these issues on stage and whether that is done 
in a meta fashion where you're like, ah, I can't figure this out. Or honestly, in rehearsal itself, where as a performer, if you see your partner trying to achieve something, it will affect your character as well. And your character will change and you sort of build it together. They also have a great passage where they talk about Mei Lan Fang. He was considered the queen of the Peking opera. And I just love that he, Robert Lewis says that that performance was one of the most truthful and moving that he had seen. Where from the outside, the form of Peking opera can look so stylized and so unnatural. But it still communicates this artistic truth for those that are receptive to it. And I just love that he's like drawing inspiration from this art form that he has no real background in and no understanding of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he can still see it, appreciate it for what it is, and kind of try to incorporate it into his art. Break it down. Like, why was that so effective? Oh, it's because he maneuvered the fan in such a way to show his eyes. And then when the music crescendoed and then cut out, Right at the crest of the music, he bends his neck a certain way so it looks like the character's head is cut off, and then the curtain comes down. There's something really cool about an artist whose mind is always thinking and like taking in information and just breaking it apart and seeing, oh, yes, cool, that's how they did that. Oh, that's really cool. I wonder if I can use that. It, it keeps us inspired, and I keep, think it keeps us innovative. I think Robert Lewis talks about an artist expanding their truth by experiencing other types of art form or even other things. You talked about this in the beginning where it's sort of deepening your own self, improving upon yourself and opening ourselves up to artwork or things that we might not even realize exists or maybe think, oh, well, I don't know if I'd really like that. Just experiencing it, going with it and being open to it will have a benefit to us, whether that means that we look at something and go, um, this is a really great use of form or this is amazing or we become a fan or we look at something and we go, eh, I'm not a huge fan of that. But that helps us understand ourselves more. Do yeah. you think that's accurate? I think so. I mean, that's sec that's that's lecture two, working on oneself, deepening your understanding, deepening your well, what you can draw from. I think it's super important to be able to watch something and go, I like that. It's also really important to look at something and know, I don't like that. Because Robert Lewis goes through the book and perpetually says that everyone has their own technique. I also think everyone has their own aesthetic. And it's important to know what you like and what you don't like, because that's going to influence your work your entire life. Yeah, yeah. And and not to look at something and go, that's good, that's bad. It's more a, not to always do that. There are some things, I mean, somebody was talking about Michael Bay the other day. Man, he's he's made some really bad stuff. But like, <laughs> but like, um, but in all seriousness, as an artist to see something artistic and not necessarily jump to the judgment of that's good, that's bad, but trying to keep the idea that is something my, uh, that, that fits with my aesthetic. 
that's something that doesn't fit with my aesthetic. That doesn't mean it's bad. That just means that it doesn't work for me or I don't groove with it or whatever. Um, and that's okay. I have plenty of examples of people people who have talked to me about stories like this or things that I've seen or heard or read where people, particularly grad school students, come out of a program and anything that doesn't fit with their training can be labeled as bad or not the right way to do it. But I think that's something we have to be conscious of because if we are condemning the art, it doesn't move any, it doesn't necessarily move things forward. Yeah. Um, in every situation. Uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think it's important to be able to look at something and at, at the barest level, just understand why did they do that? And look at something, you know, you can have your own judgments about it, but why did you do this? And that can either be something that enriches your arsenal or your well, uh, your artistry, or you can just pass it by and say, no, thanks. I'm good. I, I like the openness of that of that mindset. That's really nice. This is the section that also brought up falseness as a key, keeping some distance away from like real truth so that the audience can kind of fit themselves in and that the audience is kind of resentful of real truth because it does put up a barrier. It's indulgent. It, it It's so singular in focus that it kind of blocks them off. And I think that's true. To really let an audience in, there has to be some space. When you have a balance of the internal and external, it, it leaves space for the audience. Um, I was mentioning that earlier with something that Nadia Bowers and Corey Stola talked about, but I just wanted to touch on this again because I had wrote it down in my journal. Yeah, actually, when you mentioned it uh, with Corey Stoll and Nadia Bowers, I thought of what I had picked for the fifth lecture because um, I can't remember if this is a direct quote or not, but Lewis essentially says, people are easily fooled. Falseness moves them because not much is needed to remind them of their own feelings. Truth can make people uncomfortable, so they say it's not true. It, it's, a really, um, it's a really interesting way that art that people can point to, just because people point to something and say, this feels true, it kind of goes back to the question of, well, what do you mean true? What, what truth is being told here? Is it your own personal truth? Is it a more, is it a universal truth? Is it reality? Is it artistic truth? There is a lot of sides of that question. Um, and the, the, idea that people go to theater just to learn about themselves I think cuts out a lot of other benefits of going to theater um, there's a I, I and I know it's in your email it reminds me of the Vietnamese proverb oh yes you and I will tell each other a story about all of us that is it's such a beautiful um, idea and something that theater can really help uh, generate in people if we are looking beyond ourselves. And that's true top to bottom, I think, whether you're on the stage, behind the stage, or you are out in the audience looking at it. It's, it's, it's this, again, that idea of empathy. Yeah. We've been around for tens of thousands of years, but... Humans, you know, we have a lot in common. 
and some things are downright predictable at this point. It seems like we go through cycles in each civilization. Yep, yep. Uh, there was something else you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the use of the actor, um, of their feeling, and cutting out other things that might be there beyond their feeling. And um, the idea that I, I felt Lewis touched on a bit as well in the fifth lecture was that feeling is different from character to character. So if you're only using your depth of feeling, you you might be missing the character's depth. The character's depth might be less than yours, or it might be greater. Could be. I mean, you know, uh, who I mean, who so has? Much. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there's there's actors on there. There's there's characters who are feeling a lifetime worth a lifetime's worth of emotions in ninety minutes, and that is that's something to be said, and and it raises us, I think, as performers to get to that depth sort of a mixed metaphor there but it's 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 the idea of in order if we go deeper it will raise us up mm -hmm. to the level of that character yeah it makes me think of that alfred hitchcock quote films are life with all the uninteresting parts cut out yeah yeah and I know i've heard people equate that to shakespeare too that he you know he wrote plays with all the he wrote life with all the boring bits cut out i've heard people equate <laughs> it to shakespeare and and hitchcock and everything which which is is true and i i think if if a play is extremely well written now i and i don't want to there's an effort sometimes to lionize playwrights like everything they wrote was perfect i mean i'm sure you could point to people literally i think if you're going to point to a perfect play raisin in the sun is I think that's a perfect play. Um, and I think there are other examples of that in the American theater um, canon. Mm -hmm. But not every play is perfect, and not every playwright is perfect. I mean, look at Shakespeare. He wrote some crap. <laughs> it's not all beautiful. But um, just because it's not beautiful doesn't mean it necessarily needs to be ignored. I think there it needs to be asking the question of what we were talking about before. If there seems to be a part in there that's boring or dull or whatever, why is it there? Is it there on purpose? How can we use it? I mean, if we weren't looking close enough, Chekhov would probably be considered one of the most boring playwrights ever. But he wrote life so well, you know? He was in danger of being completely discounted as a playwright. It was the Moscow Art Theater and Stanislavski producing that knockout production of The Seagull that really put him on the map and made him the equivalent of Russia's Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be an interesting... That would be something that would I, I would be interested in doing. This is sort of a off-topic, but, like, looking at a country and trying to see maybe trying to find what they consider their greatest playwright. You know, I don't want to very... say everyone's Shakespeare because that just focuses on Shakespeare. Cause right. But, but like getting an idea of either a country, I mean, that's a tough term because that's just all on borders and borders change. But 
but the idea of a country or a people and their what they might consider their if you were like what's the playwright that summed up your culture they could point to it be like this person i mean that's that's yes i i i hear you but also like theater traditions vary so much oh yeah i mean that'd be that'd be a fascinating exhibition of like performing arts from around the world that i'd be totally here for oh my god but it would probably take a lifetime to produce (laughs) yeah and and also you know like i think of i think of art forms like kabuki um Mm -hmm. or like the vietnamese water puppets or you know there's just a lot of performing arts that are like the the idea of a playwright is a very western idea that wouldn't translate to all cultures and so I'm, I'm wondering, like, would that really, like, in the search of this country's best playwright, if it's meant to showcase their culture, are we actually using a colonial view of what culture is instead of making room for, like, whatever performing arts that they have, you know, that they uniquely have produced on their own? So more the idea of, like not worrying about the playwright but the idea of a cultural performing art no i mean yeah no you're you're totally spot on i'm like i'm thinking like what is your art that a performing arts that is steeped in your tradition that i think showcases your but like i also laugh because like i feel like the uk would have like shakespeare and for us it would be probably musical theater yeah but musical theater you go down the list and it's just like well what are we going to show everybody is it what's hot right now which obviously would be hamilton or is it is it is it our culture from the past mm. or is it our culture from the present so like we, there would be a wing there'd of be American a wing. musical theater <laughs> <laughs> but that's i mean I, that maybe that's that's that maybe that's something we shoot for when we're when we're getting into filthy our rich. 60s when we're filthy rich <laughs> yeah and we can produce it ourselves and we're just like all right let's gather all the performing arts we can and make Make the world a better place. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, anything else for the for the fifth lecture? Nah, man. I'm good. Okay. Awesome. Um, all right. So, number six, which is actors or artists. So, this lecture and the fifth lecture were two that I really took a lot away from even in my notes when trying to narrow it down like one or two things i had a lot of difficulty doing that uh, but we're gonna try <laughs> so uh uh what would you like to what would you like to highlight for this one the first thing i wrote down was balance just balance yeah and i think a part of that is like just because we we talk so much about trying to elicit truthful reactions or staying in the moment things that are very unique to actors in their art form. Mm-hmm. But he also goes into great detail about there's a discipline in what you do to be a great actor. And therefore, by being a great actor, you are also a great artist. Mm-hmm. Edith Evans, an actress that he spoke about in the book, he loved that she had the discipline to write down the subconscious thoughts of her characters between the lines in our training, we called it off the ball. So when it's not our line, we you know, whatever is being sent to us off the cuff, off the ball, like we can react um, and still, you know, be a flesh and blood human being. But 
There's something about an actor really thinking about the effect these impulses that are being sent to them would have on their character. And I think that's that's good. When you're working a rehearsal process that's only going to be four weeks, it's good to have this discipline and forethought and this kind of understanding of the play as a whole. It's it's funny. And again, we've talked about how we went to grad school together. I literally, after I wrote that section, wrote down, I think he's talking about off the ball acting. <laughs> like I wrote that in my notes. <laughs> so that's that's great. I'm glad you talked about that one. Um as as performers, you have to remember that, uh, for those of you listening, you have to remember that you're not only acting when you're speaking, you are acting the entire time you're on stage. Even if you're asleep, even if you died on stage, you are still acting, okay? Um, and when someone else is speaking, if you are open and listening to them, that means you're acting and what they're doing is affecting you with us in our training we talked a lot about subtextual analysis and that really i know for me helped with that off the ball stuff while my partner is speaking how is that affecting me what is it making me uh, feel or do or um if, if it's making me walk away from the person or walk towards them or walk towards a window why is it making me do that so having that ex extra script, what did Lewis call it? Like an invisible script, something like that? A score. Yeah, invisible like that. score that will help enhance your work and it'll give more for your partner to work with. If you're just there and you're sort of just kind of dead-eyed absorbing it, your partner's got to do all the work. So you help them out if you also continue acting while they're acting. I, I'm so mad that I didn't write this down. I think this is the section that he speaks about dissecting a play from mm -hmm. an actor's point of view, mm -hmm. therefore an artist's point of view, in a way that I thought really resonated with me and really resonated with the way that we learned from Jack. Mm -hmm. So you're reading the play. First time it's a broad brushstroke. This is the play. This is what it's dealing with. But then as you gradually break it down and start to understand your part, and not just your part, but your role in the story and how that serves the greater action of the play, this broad stroke becomes more like pointillist painting. So mm. that you can be more precise. And that precision, I think, can be very freeing. Because if you have that precision and understanding of what's going on in the play, you can have your own opinion on it. You know how that would affect your character, how they would feel. I think it's a huge tool so that you can really form a fully fleshed out performance. I, I and, and I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's actually one of the things, now I don't have to mention it, because you, you took it for me, which is great. So I get, <laughs> an, I get another one. Um, but um, I wrote about, or I wrote down the idea that once you have the theme of the play or the idea or the action or the objective or whatever you want to call it, again, Lewis is real loose about terminology. He's like, I don't care if you call it an action, an intention, or spinach, just do it. Um, mm -hmm. But the this overarching theme or objective of the play, attach each character to it so that it holds the form together. Um, and if we are using our characters 
or if we are giving our characters objectives or ideas or, or things that are somehow attached to the play, we all work together on this. And you see where your literal role is in this show. Um, I think it, it helps combat that idea, again, that individualistic mindset that can sometimes be in an actor's brain. Um, it, it definitely it definitely helps. And it creates a better artist because it goes towards the idea or one of the other things that I, I really liked about this chapter was talking about how the um, he, he wrote that great artists are great equalizers. They see all around a problem, not just one side of it. So that's pretty much a quote from that. So an actor isn't just considering themselves. They're considering the their partners, the lighting designer, the set. There's there's so much that has to be considered in this. And that's what creates a greater artist. And frankly, it's your job. You should know the action of the play and what part you play in that. And it translates. It's not just a theater thing. I took a class with Marcy Phillips, the head of casting at ABC. And she was saying in film and television, you know, if you have a co-starring or guest starring role, you're there to interact with the series regular or the, the lead of the film. So you need to understand what purpose this scene is serving. So if you're serving up exposition, how do you do that in a way that is fueled by the circumstances of the scene? How can you do your good acting work to make this exposition feel more truthful? That's a wonderful idea that creates such a, not just an artist, but a professional artist. Um, number 26 on the chart, which if, if uh, again, if you get this book, check it out. Um, I am going to try to create a link to the chart um, when uh, on our uh, on our website. So keep that in mind. But number 26 is ethical discipline, which means take care of your props, your costumes, your ensemble, your dressing room, everything. You're, you're taking care of everything in that space and it helps cultivate a proper atmosphere of creation. So if you're walking in and you are um, part of this team, you together will create an artistic work. Shall we um, jump into the next session? Seventh lecture. Lecture seven. The Method and Poetic Theater. Oh, it's like you're doing the audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Audible, hire me. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, man, I loved this section. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because, you know, UH, we focused a lot on Shakespeare. And we dabbled in the Greeks. But it was a big challenge for me doing what this section of the book was talking about. Letting the poetry influence the stage action. Yeah. And I think for me, I have, I haven't always let the imagery um, of what I'm doing infect my performance as much as I think it should. Um, I think I, I have been guilty plenty of times of going, well, I'm going to do this gesture or make this movement 
because it works in the scene or even because, you know, I think it looks good, but I don't necessarily connect it to an image. But one of the things he talks, uh, the, the quote he has for poets is about image. He says they call it imagism and it creates, achieves, conveys emotion or affection, not through concept of things, but through things themselves. So he uses that heart in the Highlands example and where he had the actors on stage essentially create the image of a tree using their bodies, their props, and their blocking. And, and that's, that's something that helped inform me just when I was reading. I was like, oh, my God, why? That's, that's, it's easy to do. It's so glorious. It's this actor in the play. He's, it's an actor playing an actor. The character is an actor. And he is playing music for this village. And he's standing at a level that is it's much higher than the villagers. And so they gather around him as he starts to play. And the imagery that Robert Lewis wanted was this actor-musician watering the fertile garden that is this village. And as he played and as he got more invested in the music, the villagers would gather. They would stretch out and get comfortable so the plant was growing further out. A father would put their child on his shoulder so it was growing taller. And at the end, as a thank you, the villagers were holding him pieces of fruit. So it looked like this tree of people was now beginning to ripen and show fruit. And then he was also like, and because I couldn't help myself, I had the little child on his father's shoulder hold up a really colorful chicken. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And it's, it's, you know, whether it's subtle or heavy handed or whatever, if the audience can point to it, if someone watched that production back in the 50s and was like, that, they look like a tree. Okay, cool. You know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I think it would benefit, I know me personally, to keep that idea in mind as I continue forward. Like, what are the images that I'm creating, whether or not the audience gets it? I mean, I, I, it, it shouldn't, I can't do the interpretation for the audience. If you have 200 people in the audience, there's going to be 200 different opinions that walk out of a production. Um, but if the images are strong enough, if they're palpable enough, then it goes back to, they might not be able to articulate it, but they'll know something happened. Yeah. They'll feel it in their guts. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's just, that's just great. I also think that this exploration of what mythic and poetic theater combined with a method is, it's the perfect marriage of what he's talking about internal and external. You need to have the internal to fuel what you're saying and doing on stage. But you need to have the form and kind of mastery over your body to be able to execute. That's exactly the same thing that I looked at as well. We're hitting it. Great. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's, I mean, he talks about it as a director and as an actor. So like as a director, you need to understand both, right? The content of the poetry of the play, what they're talking about, what they're trying to explore, and then the form of how do you shape this poetic piece of theater into a play. 
So the understanding for a director is essential. They need to have that. But for an actor, they need to be able to utilize everything that is involved with content and form to deliver what the director is trying to do. So it's, I don't know, I think it's one of the reasons why I love doing Shakespeare so much. It's because themes are so heavy, yet the stories can be so personal. So there's a great stretching internally, but then externally, these characters are so passionate or they're fighting war. So you have to physically inhabit a person who is used to going to war or a person who will scale the walls to meet the person that they love. You can't have the internal communicated without having the external matching it. Yeah, that's yes. Yes. And I think that is one of the most important lessons that has been mentioned through this entire podcast. It's a meeting of the internal and the external because I'm, I'm sure we've seen plenty of times where a performer does a gesture or um, a movement or, or whatever and makes an external, like an external change happens, but there's something kind of off about it. There's something that's not filled and that you, you don't need to have gone through a training program to get your master's in fine arts to be able to point to it. And mm -hmm. there's other times where you can see that there's so much churning on the inside, but the external either isn't enough or it's, it's not matching it. And I, and I don't want to give the impression, again, for those of you listening, I don't, want you, I don't want to give the impression that we are saying that you need to make big, bold, strong choices all the time. What, what, we're, what we are talking about is making sure that the internal life of the character is supported in the external. Mm -hmm. um, because if you are feeling the most imaginative world that has ever graced the stage, that's awesome. But if the audience can't hear you or if they don't see the gestures matching it, then it, it really doesn't matter because they haven't, they haven't received it. It also gives room for you to help elevate your performance into something that maybe no one else has done before. Um, the National Theatre in the UK, in London, did this production of Shakespeare's Othello with Rory Kinnear playing Iago and Adrian Lester playing Othello. And in the play, Iago convinces Othello that his wife is cheating on him. And there's a scene where Othello is essentially saying that he is leaving behind his old life as a military man, a celebrated military veteran, and as the man who loves Desdemona so that he can pursue the course of justice that he needs. We're following along great, the language, because his speech is matching the emotion of the poetry and it's hitting the back of the theater so we can all hear it. But he does this gesture when he's talking about leaving behind his old life. He's like taking both of his hands, pulling them at his stomach, and then it kind of like follows up his chest, up his throat to his mouth, and then it's like his hands cup and he's blowing away his old life. Did not have to do that. There's nothing in the text telling him to do that. But he decided to use this grand gesture to help support the poetry of the text and to support the emotion of the scene. And I still think about that today. It's been seven years since I saw that, and I still think about it today. Literally, as soon as you started talking about this example, I knew exactly what you were going to say. Um, the and I think this is a good just just referring to the book. I think this is a good example, or a, a more up to date example, and something that you can, if you do a, 
deep enough dive in YouTube or something like that, you might be able to find this performance um, or through National Theater uh, so that you can actually view what Adrian Lester did. But in the in Method or Madness, um, a, an equivalent of that would be when he talks about, I think he was talking about Chekhov. And, and Michael Chekhov is literally trying to dig into another character's chest to get to their heart. And it, it's this great example of how a just amazing internal engine that is creating so much imagery or using your imagination, this is all your imagination, mm-hmm. in, it can, can help you create such wonderful external artistic choices just like you brought up man that that's i think that's that's such a such an awesome example that you used i'm gonna throw another one out there that may or may not be useful the national theater has a production of streetcar named desire with jillian anderson playing blanche dubois and there's this great scene at the end where she's by herself she's like wanting so badly to go back to her good old glory days and like the language is so broad and like declamatory but she is covered her face is just covered in smeared lipstick she's wearing her old prom dress which doesn't zip in the back anymore she doesn't fit in it anymore yeah and she's like her head is askew and her body's just like not aligned at all and there's just such a great you know clanging there's a dissonance between what she's doing physically and what she's saying and i think it's just such a smart choice do you think that's such a great sorry go ahead representation Uh, no i thought it was a great representation of what you know blanche dubois is yeah that's a really good example i wasn't even aware of that so i i have heard of that production and um i really want to see it because jillian anderson is i mean holy cow just if you know Gillian Anderson only from X-Files, you are seeing a very, very small part of a fantastic artist. Um, I highly recommend watching season one of American Gods. She's great. Oh, you know, I haven't seen that show, but I read the book last year. Really enjoyed the book. Um, well, things changed a lot because they... I think the showrunners got replaced or something, but mm. season one is so good. I like it better than the books. Oh, okay. Well, might have yeah. to check that out. Um, so for the just really quick last thing on the seventh lecture, um, it goes back to what we were talking about with uh, the external and the internal. It was those questions of what, why, and how, and sort of the order that Lewis put them in with the realistic form versus the poetic form. And what he talks about is with the realistic form, it's focusing on what one does and why one does it, keeping in mind that the how is always present. And for me, it sounded like he was making an, not an argument, but maybe a point of with the realistic form, it's more of an internal to external approach with the poetic form, the how is sort of front and center and the what and why are still important, but it seems more, it could be more of an external approach into an internal. No matter if you're going internal to external or external to internal though, you need to wind up at the same place. 
I think it's important to note that he's also a director. So sometimes I feel like his his point of view is like, yes, I'm talking about this as I would like an actor to think about it. But then also I feel like he's like, yes, I also would like to, I would like actors to think about this as a director, you know, like he's, he wears multiple hats. And sometimes I, I, I don't think he compartmentalizes as well as he may want to. That's a good point. There are parts of this book that I rem- I mean, I was reading through and I was just like, uh, this sounds like it's more for a director, but that's fine. I mean, you know, it's a good mindset. Well, yeah, I know. It was, it was a talk that was open to actors, designers, directors, and even critics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. Shall we bring it on home? Bring it on home. Eighth lecture. So, eighth lecture, rehearsal procedure, and summation. So, this was an interesting lecture, I have to say. That's a very loaded way to uh, to start. Well, I want I want to get I, I I don't want you to think that I didn't like it. Um, but but it's 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 so different than the others because there is, at least for me, it seemed like he was doing such a. I don't know if practical is the right word, but it was it was such a it felt like such a measured, sort of description, of what to do for a rehearsal, and a rehearsal that, I have never been in before. <laughs> Like I've never I, I haven't like either, that. frankly. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm I'm really interested in your uh, in your in, in what you'd like to highlight in this. I, I definitely have a couple of things. I mean, he, he said some really great stuff, um, but I have a question at the end of the discussion about this eighth lecture that I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to wait till till the end. Um, so what what would you like to highlight on this one? Well, I also think that it's interesting i just don't think that it's feasible i don't think that a lot of theater companies are going to do this in america in 2020 and so i'm i'm chalking this up to this is his ideal this is the ideal of a director from a very specific time and place 1957 whenever he gave these lectures making art on broadway for new york city you know so that's 60 plus years of a different kind of rehearsal room dynamic that's been going on and different expectations. So I'm chalking this up to like Robert Lewis's ideal of what a rehearsal process would be. I like it. Being read the play is a different idea. I'll, I'll go through it. The first one, being read the play, finding someone third party to read the play to all the performers and the director. Second, a simple read without too much on it. We're not going to be acting it out all the way. It's more to talk and listen. The third, read clues in the script that the playwright has left for us. Then after this third read, have a production design talk where you introduce scenic elements, costumes, props, other elements of design, and then start to let that influence the role and style in your performance. Fourth, table work. Fifth, physically blocking the show. Sixth, while you're blocking, also be mentally preparing for elements like costume, set, and props so that you're not blindsided whenever you start technical rehearsals. Seven, 
smoothing out externals. So that's when you get to be really editorial about what you want the physical action and physical life on the play to be. Then dress rehearsals, you open, yada, yada, yada. Congratulations. Yada, yada, yada. Then it becomes more like what you'll find in 21st century theater. I couldn't have summed that up better. That's I'm glad you went through those um, as you did. The, the, the beginning of the rehearsals are what is most striking was was what was most striking for me about this about this process um the because i i mean i've had i've had sh i've been on shows where there's been plenty of table work i've been on shows where there's literally been like one read through and then we do it like then we're up on our feet i what I you've been in rehearsals where the first rehearsal is a full run of the show, right? Exactly, exactly. And then that run of the show actually just is the show. Like we, it, it was, uh, and it actually ended up being one of my favorite shows while I was at that theater. I loved that show so much. I would still be doing that show today if someone gave me the choice. Um, awesome. But it, it it actually made me think of different rehearsal procedures. This is less about acting and I guess more about directing. But this exploration, I mean, there's, there's, we talked about it a little bit. I don't know if there's, I don't know if you'd call it a fad, but there's this popularity with doing uh, Shakespeare's original practices when it comes to rehearsals, uh, limited rehearsal time. You only get your lines, this kind of thing. I, I, you know, there's a few theaters that do this. And, it makes me think about the other rehearsal processes that are out there that might be worth exploring. I mean, you know, in a world where time and money are meaningless, which we're just living in a world where time is meaningless right now, but we're in a world where time and money are meaningless, I would be interested in trying this. Like, the idea that somebody reads the play to the cast, because what uh, Lewis was talking about at one point is that when actors are there for their first read-through, they are concerned with their big speeches. And it shuts them, it, it, it kind of shuts down their listening to the rest of the play. Um, and, I, and I've definitely felt that. Not all the time. Sometimes it depends on my preparation. But it can, it can shut them down from listening to the rest of the play. If everyone is hearing the play from the same unbiased source that's the other big thing he talks about is like uh make sure you get somebody who's not performing it but who's just saying it like giving the ideas of the play as simply as possible there's a better chance that everyone's going to be on the same page which means there's a better chance that everyone's going to be on board with the theme or at least understand the theme of the show now that being said it sort of all goes back to the mindset of a director mm -hmm. so um, I'll, I'll ask the question now that I was going to ask at the end. Do you think, how useful is this chapter for actors reading this book? Robert Lewis is dead, so it doesn't matter if you, if you, if you crap on it. <laughs> I, I think, no, I mean, I mean, there's, I think, uh, it's tough as an, as a younger actor, mm -hmm. I would have read this and been like, wait, what? Yeah. But as an older actor, I get it. There are some things that he's doing purposefully to take the ego out of the work and really focus on the fundamentals. 
because he's doing a really smart layering in of things. Like, the first day the actors get to really read the play, the main emphasis is on talking and listening. Yeah, I totally agree. Love that part. Then it's reading clues the playwright has left us, which, to my 21st century sensibility, a lot of that you should do beforehand. Or like, you know, whatever you get from the director ideally would be piecemeal. But that's that comes from like a need to get the play up because we only have four weeks of rehearsal. And the production design talk, letting that influence your role and style, super clever. I totally agree that that should be a deal, but it's just not realistic because the production design team Theaters are going to have them there the first day of rehearsal, fly them back home or let them go back home and they're going to come back during tech. So it just doesn't happen in our world this way. Mm -hmm. I like that he focuses on table work. I like that he focuses on then blocking after you do table work and also making a note for the actors to prepare for the myriad of problems that are going to happen during tech. I think the idea of layering it is really smart. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to get that chance to do it in the 21st century theater that we're working in now. So maybe take this as like, okay, like talk and listen. Letting design elements influence my role and style. Not psyching myself out for tech. Cool. But yeah, this this part of the book was like, this is for director mostly. And frankly, I, do, I just don't see it being put into practice now. Yeah, I I do agree with a lot of that. You really have to, with this chapter, you have to parse out what's going to be useful a little bit more as a as an actor. And again, this is this is a podcast that's focused on acting. Um, that doesn't mean that we are leaving out other elements. But if we were going to talk about this book from a director standpoint, we would probably have different things that we would highlight and different things that we would think were very important. So, I mean, if I was a director, the eighth lecture might be one of the most important chapters for me. Um, but for me, for my druthers, it's sort of the least important um, or the least useful. I think the reasons that you gave were, uh, were perfect things to keep in mind. It would be nice maybe one day if we're able to, you know, give this sort of rehearsal process a shot, but it, it's uh, it's sort of a a tougher read when it comes to the uh, uh, when it comes to this section. Yeah. Also, if you're reading this book, in my opinion, when you get to the conversation between Stanislavski and Gordon Craig, I would just I didn't understand a lot of that. Um, and I'm I mean it just it's so it it just wasn't translating as well for me. I don't know about you. No, it didn't really translate to me either. I, I saw it as maybe a differentiation between two great minds in theater and maybe showing like how these two supposed masters in theater can still have these bickering conversations or disagreements. Because he does oftentimes remind us like, hey, maybe this doesn't work for you. Just d ditch it. Yeah. Or maybe you're not even using it right in the first place. That so, like, there's a lot yeah. of like whiplash like that. Mm -hmm. So like maybe this is another like, okay, we've just done this massive talk. Here's two people that we owe so much to of our theater tradition to. 
disagreeing and not seeing eye to eye. Right. Which I think you can get the idea from that from Lewis just saying it. You don't you can just skip over that part of the chapter. I was like, okay. Plus they they are really misogynistic towards Ophelia. They are just kind of shitting all over her the entire time. So Oh yeah, this um it's real bad. this is definitely a product of its time. Yeah. That's something to be remembered. I mean Well uh, they called uh, Yes. Sorry, I was gonna say and and uh this gets into the last two questions that I have for you. Um, one of which is, what are the problems that this book has? We talked briefly about the misogyny between the two directors about Ophelia mm -hmm. and their opinions about what kind of woman she is and how she affects Hamlet mm -hmm. and the story of Hamlet. So there's that to watch out for. They also use antiquated terms like Orientals when referring to Asian people of East Asian descent. And I also think that it can feel very exclusionary because this is a supplement. This assumes that you have some sort of understanding of Stanislavski's method. So I think that it's good to read An Actor Prepares and Building a Character before this because this is kind of a supplement to help bridge the two books together and clear up misconceptions that they had at the time. As a young actor with probably not a lot of experience, what I think it continually does really well is to strive for excellence and to keep an open mind in your training and to not get pigeonholed into one mode of thinking as you pursue your actor training. But I think this is definitely going to be a book that will be very valuable to revisit like five years after you're out of school. That's awesome. The only the only thing I would um, add is the use of it, it, um, the use of pronouns. Um, Lewis oh, assumes, yes. yeah. Lewis assumes that every time he says actor, every time he's talking about an actor, he's talking about a guy. He says he yes. through the whole thing until he says stage beauty, and then he switches it to she. So just be aware of that as you're reading this book. Um, I, I, uh, I think that hits on a lot of things just for people to be aware of and the mindset that we're talking about. And I'm pretty sure Tea House of the August Moon will never be done on stage ever. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a pretty messed up play. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of plays that have won the Tony Award that will probably never see the light of day again. Good. Good. <laughs> I don't mind that. <laughs> but I think the core of it, the um, that search for truth, there's there's that. These are ideas and concepts that are introduced in this book to help broaden your skill set as an actor and to kind of check yourself whenever you're following one path too much. He talks continually about how every person has their own process. So think of this as a way to enrich your own process. And it's not the end all be all. They wouldn't want you to make it the end all be all anyway. Great. Awesome. All right. Last question for you. This is a this is going to be a quick one. And then I want to give you a little time to uh, do your self-promotion. Uh, this question is, if you were teaching a class, let's say it's an intro to acting class for majors. So these are people who are actually interested in con continuing on as actors. You had to assign one chapter from this book, one lecture. Which one do you think it would be? I know it's a tough choice. <laughs> I think I would give you, I think I would assign lecture three, attitudes toward the method. I think it encompasses so much that I love, the language, a lot of it, 
I really agreed with. The unconscious guide versus conscious study. It introduces psychological gesture. The um, Michael Chekhov like burying his trying to dig out his the loved one's heart as he was emphatically trying to get him to understand how much he loved him. And also that openness to different methodologies and to open training. Like find what works for you. And I think that that chapter really extols that. It also warns about the dangers of emotionalism, which I'm a big fan of. Awesome. That's great. Um, chapter three, excellent choice. Uh, myself, I am sort of, I, I'm leaning towards uh, the fifth lecture, the truth in acting. That um, question of what is artistic truth and how do we suss that out? Um, mm. But I think those are two, I think the third chapter is an, is an awesome selection as well. Uh, this section is a little bit more for the teachers out there who might be wondering how they can use this book with their students. Um, hey. Yeah. So now that we have gone through this excellent choice, again, thank you so much for choosing this for our first yeah, uh, thanks for, for our me, first man. podcast, of course. Um, now, David, what do you got going on right now that you want to uh, let people know about? Nothing, because it's COVID-19. <laughs> okay. Just kidding. Um, That's not true. I co-founded a theater company called The Sound Collective. We are continually trying to find new ways to serve our community. Our next project is a collaboration with Theater Communications Group. We're going to be featured during their digital conference, and we're also working on a piece that explores anti-blackness within the Asian American community. I am also in a episodic D&D podcast called Encounter Party. We were just featured by Nerdist, which is awesome, and we've been continually trending on the Apple podcast chart. So, And we also just locked down a deal to convert our show into a video cast. So if you're interested in Dungeons & Dragons, come check out Encounter Party. But yeah, that's what I've got going on. I'm looking forward to auditioning for plays again. That's awesome, man. Congratulations on all that. Um, for those of you who might not be aware, I think part of the reason David is also on this cast is the first... Uh, guest is because I'm just going to be riding his coattails for this part. So that's, uh, <laughs> um, but David, we're in, we're in you... a brave new world, my friend. We'll see <laughs> if you, uh, if you, uh, we'll make sure we have links to, uh, the song collective and the, um, encounter party. That would be awesome. Um, can you, am I pronouncing the collective name, right? Nope. <laughs> I didn't think so. But okay. I wanted Sound? to ask. It's, it's using, it uses tones that don't, don't exist in the English language. Okay. All right. Great. I just, you know, say it again for us, please. Sound? Great. Awesome. So I'll make sure that there are uh, links to both those projects for you. Um, and again, thank you so much for coming on, man. It has been wonderful to talk to you for as long as we have about this. It's, I, yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I miss you, bud. It's good to hear from you. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to the first episodes of Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation that David Huynh and I had about Method or Madness by Robert Lewis. And if you're looking for a new way to listen to Rooms and Reckonings, we're now on Spotify. So please check it out. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Patrick Poole, and we'll see you next time on Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast.